walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, believe, or walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, walk, tell you walk. Daniel, don't believe or shout. Daniel, don't believe or shout. Daniel, don't tell you shout. Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined today by Charles Love. Charles Love is the executive director of Seeking Educational Excellence, the host of The Charles Love Show, the co-host of the podcast Cut the Bull, and a scholar at 1776 Unites. He is a frequent guest on any number of local and national radio and television programs on which to the delight of his many adoring listeners and viewers, he disseminates his clear-headed, plain-spoken, incontrovertible wisdom. He writes and speaks frequently on race, current events, and the cultural issues by which our great nation is at present absorbed, and is the author of two books, We Want Equality, How the Fight for Equality Gave Way to Preference, and his latest work, and that on which we'll be focusing today, Race Crazy, BLM, 1619, and the Progressive Racism Movement. Both works are available at most reputable and probably a few disreputable booksellers, given the fact that Mr. Love is the expositor of what some in the corporate media might call heterodox ideas. Charles, thank you so much for joining me on my humble little show. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for the great introduction. I'm going to listen to that on a loop. That was awesome. <laughs> of course, of course. You can save that and and uh, listen to it anybody, anytime anyone uh, thinks less of you. There you go. <laughs> so, so I want to begin with the term on which uh, the subtitle of your latest work, Race Crazy, ends, and that is progressive racism. Hmm. Uh, this term might strike the uninitiated reader as somewhat oxymoronic, like jumbo shrimp bittersweet or greater detroit uh, has it not been drilled into our heads that progressivism by which all that is righteous decent virtuous and good encompassed is anti-racist can you comment on that oh it definitely has and that's the reason why i uh, use it. I, I mean, there's several ways we can describe it. That was just a, a term that I coined that I thought would be um, a really good way to describe it. But you're right. We have been conditioned to believe that progressivism is the, not just uh, anti-racist, it's the opposite of all bad. But, you know, we're in a time where definitions shift, but not in the normal way they do as they evolve over time. It's just a certain group of people get to decide what words mean. That's problematic. And it's just like you you may hear a lot of people who lean right but don't want to get caught into a political thing which is good for them because is you get labeled once you say you're a democrat republican so they'll say i'm liberal i'm just a classical liberal right so it's kind of like that so what liberalism used to mean what you used to think progressive means may change and morph but beyond that progressive is different in the sense that when people say classical liberalism you can go look it up or maybe you already know, you understand what that means. But when people say progressive, it's implied that it's good, but really it just means change. It means moving forward, it means progressive, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be better, right? It just means sometimes change is just change for change's sake. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. So I say progressive racism in the sense that a lot of these people who are self-described progressives they speak in the way that we want things to be better. We want it to be inclusive. We want to progress the cultural discourse. But what they're doing is really no different than what a racist would do, right? So they're saying that, you know, there's a gap, let's say, in educational advancement for blacks between whites. And they'll say, that's a problem. Well, we need to fix it. And they'll say things like, we need to fix it by teaching blacks differently because they don't learn the same way. Well, that sounds like John Calhoun to me. Right. You're literally saying they're physically and genetically different. So we need to offset those differences by treating, putting them in a box and treating them differently. So even where they may be right about things that, that are problematic or things we need to tweak or improve on, their whole premise is laced with the same racism that we 
obviously know from the past. So they'll say things like, you know, like, like Kendi famously says, the only way we can fix discrimination is with more discrimination. And the only way we can end racism is with more racism. But no normal person would say, they would say racism is bad, let's end it. But they say, well, how do you do that? It's like, I don't know, be racist against more people. Nobody would say that. So that's what the progressive racism is. It's like a kind of gentler racism. It's the, their tone and their anger and their actions are no different than the races of the 1860s. The only difference is the intent, where others will say their intent is to keep Blacks subjugated. They'll say, no, we're trying to elevate them. And the way we're going to do it is to treat them differently and act as if they're not equal. So it's the same thing, at least from my standpoint. Yeah, and you anticipated uh, Mr. Mr. Kendi, uh, <laughs> about whom I want to talk a little bit later on in this in this uh, episode. But I think you're right. So much of it gets back to this linguistic relativism, this linguistic game that we seem to be engaging in right now. Whereas, like you said, progressive must perforce mean good. Um, now, of course, we tend to draw the line between progressive and conservative, um, but I think that overlooks the fact that a lot of conservatism also is looking for um, the most efficacious and best ways forward. Like if you read Edmund Burke, this is emphasized time and again. A conservatism isn't necessarily um, one who is ideologically stuck in the past with mm -hmm. a complete inability to look forward and to move forward and to implement new ideas, but it's with greater reverence for the past always with the knowledge that our traditions inform us and lead us forward. But it's it's not a complete um, insensitivity to what is before us and, and how we can better change. So I think that's an excellent definition. And I think your coining of that term is, is well, um, is going to be well regarded and well accepted into the normal discourse, which unfortunately is, is by and large dictated by uh, by other forces, be they in academia or in the uh, mass media. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, would you say that this movement of progressive racism has had a net uh, beneficial or detrimental effect on society writ large? <laughs> oh, um, I guess I'd say overall a net, well, mostly, I, I think, uh, I'm biased, I think it's mostly all bad. No, but it definitely has done more harm than good, regardless of the intent. But where I guess you would separate it is how many of them are malicious and how many of them are doing the disservice, but not intentionally thinking they're doing good. But the bottom line is still the same. So like if you look at the group, if you look at BLM, even them, though, I think the group initially started with positive intent. They saw an issue. There were some issues in policing. No one would say there weren't. And you may disagree with how they wanted to fix it. That was the baseline. But what it became is not that. I write in the book about how they lost their way in the sense that whatever. So the what, what I try to, to, to talk to people, so I talk to the normals. I don't spend most of my time talking to academia because I think most people need to understand this, right? So I do, but not the normal. So I would talk to a group of friends, people that I meet, that think that there are serious problems in policing, right? So they would be leaning towards agreeing with them. And so what I point out to them, I don't get in a debate about whether they're right or wrong about what things need to change the police. And I just say, OK, go look at BLM's website. Look at their recent comments on, on, on social media or anyone who's well regarded as a ally of theirs and how they speak. They don't really talk about policing anymore. So even if you think they are right and even if you agree that policing is an issue, you are supporting an organization that doesn't talk about policing anymore. Go look, it's it's BDS, then that went away. It's traditional family, uh, and that went away. It's uh, trans, what is it, what's the word that you, I, I had to train myself, because it's not even where, cis-heteropatriarchy, right? So they kept talking about that over and over again. And then my friends would call me back, it's like, you're right, they're not saying anything about police. So set aside, we can have a debate about what we need to do in policing, but that's not what they're doing. Well, the same can be said for you talk about academia. When you teach people that blacks are inherently different, whether you say that they are where they're failing, they're failing strictly because of racism, or you teach them that, you know, this white bads, I mean, I'd love to see the day without a white and all those things they used to tweet in the New York Times used to say, 
obviously that has ill effects on, on the psyche of people, right? Especially on the fringes, on the margins. But beyond that, if you're teaching this in academia, in public schools, what are you actually saying, one, to the black student who you, who you claim you want to increase their opportunities? What are you saying to them and how are they taking this and thinking maybe that they're not able to do certain things? But worse, it's a problem you're trying to fix. So with any other problem, we took a whiteboard and we wrote all the possible things that could be causing this problem. We, we eliminate some, we prioritize and we rank them. My problem with the, I guess I have many, but my biggest problem with the progressive racism, racists are, the biggest problem is that they take the list, they take the whiteboard. We said, let's write everything that could cause disparate impact in the country for blacks or any other minorities. And they were right, racism, okay, which should be on the bar. And then they put the pen down and they stopped writing. I'm like, where's the rest of the stuff? No, that's the stuff, that's the whole list. So the problem is really simple. What if you're wrong? What if racism is a problem, but it's 13 and a half percent of the reason why people are struggling, but it's the only thing you're focusing on? You, by definition, it's a sheer numbers game. You can never fix the problem because you're not focusing on the thing that's causing 50%, 60%, 28% of the problem. And that's what they do. You know, the Kendys of the world, Nicole Hannah-Jones, many other people say this is the primary reason why there's a difference. So they will never even look at anything else. They're wearing blinders. Which leads me to question whether or not really it is their intention to change, to change the situation. Like if it's to be reduced to racism and racism alone, um, sort of with this monistic viewpoint that this is the, the reason, the motivating purpose behind everything, all evil and, and all shortcomings within the black community and with American society writ large. Uh, it, it seems to me quite clear uh, as, an, as an outsider that, that a fixation on that will not lead us anywhere good. But I'm 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 curious to know what you think. Maybe they don't actually want us to be led anywhere good. Well, I get this question often, and I and I don't because you can't know the answer. So my opinion always kind of surprises people. Because, but I understand human nature. So I say it's probably both. There are some. So I'm sure if you're on social media, you hear the commentary from people. You hear this term "grifter." People like to throw around. And I'm like, you know, it's overused. It doesn't really mean what you mean, what you think it means, but whatever, right? Because because I'm a literal guy. That's not what a grifter is. A grifter is conning people. If I get paid for something I really believe, I'm not a grifter because I believe it. Uh, but I do think that there are some people who are doing it solely for money. And some have emotional baggage. They believe it. They drank the Kool-Aid. They, they have had a bad experience themselves or they were raised by people who have these things. So they believe it. And then you got to think of it based on the age we've been for a generation and a half teaching people at the college level to believe this. So our 40 right around the cusp and younger professionals, people with college degrees, PhDs and MBAs, were taught this kind of stuff. Right. So the average 28 year old teacher in the classroom when she was in college, that's what she learned. So it's not she learned it as an academic in an academic framework. So she didn't experience it really, but she wasn't taught it as an opinion or a theory. She was taught, okay, this is the way blacks have been treated. This is the way people believe blacks are today. This is what blacks are not able to do. So if you teach somebody who didn't grow up around black people that this is the whole of the black community, of course they're gonna believe it. So whether they're right or wrong, they don't have ill intent. They're not trying to crash the whole system. They just think they're helping. But there are people so they're the people who just think they're helping, but are you know misguided. They're the people who are who are so radical they want to bring down the system. They know it doesn't work, but if the system grows, we can build up our own system. And then there's the people that's like, look, there's a really big paycheck there. I'm not going to start putting names out there, but I have in my mind people who fit into each category. Yeah, and I think we can use our imaginations and probably <laughs> categorize people. Now, uh, tell me, do you think that the majority of those expositors of this view are in? That last of the three categories, those who are looking for a paycheck, do you think maybe the majority fall in that second group? Those who um, um, are, are grifting or, or, you know, simply have drunk the Kool-Aid, as you as you termed it. Mm -hmm. I think I actually this is going to be somewhat positive. I guess I think the smallest percentage is the people doing it for money. 
unfortunately, they, they're the loudest. And when they make a lot of money, they have great impact. I won't say they have the most impact, but they have been, So uh, we keep going back to Kendi. So obviously, Kendi's one I put in that category. So so Kendi may be one guy, but when somebody get, makes him the chair at a, at a prominent university, that gives him cachet. And then you put $10 million in his coffers, and then you take his book, which is literally poorly written. It's the worst written. I mean, I don't like Nicole Anna Jones, but she's a better writer than him. It's a poorly written piece of, you know, propaganda. You make it popular and then you let him spin off children's books, right? They cancel the thing as things started to shift, but he was going to have all these Netflix shows and all that kind of stuff. But then, so my kid's school has anti-racist baby in the library, right? So yes, he may be doing it for money, but look at the negative impact it has, right? Where lesser, surprisingly, lesser so do I think Nicole Hannah-Jones was originally doing it for money. She may be now because so when you get a windfall, I mean, we're all human. If you threw $30 million at me over a period of time, I'm either going to get cocky or I'm going to get a little bit, uh, you know, distance myself and put blinders on around the realities of normal people just because that's what money does to people. That's why I'm glad I don't have a lot of money. But so, but yeah, you, you, I think you will though. With the, with the, uh, if you keep reading <laughs> books like this, I think you will. But I hope well, you, I don't you think, never change though. Well, you know, uh, we'll see what happens, but I don't think we'll see if I change. I hope it happens just so, as a test theory, so we can test my my theory. But I don't think initially Nicole Hannah Jones did the the, the sixteen nineteen project with this man. I, I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna get a whole lot of money. I think she really thought that this was going to move the needle from a race standpoint and all this other stuff. She think white people needed to understand this stuff, and she did thought this conversation needed to happen. Now, once the money came, notice how she changed. Now she's a, she, she talks down to people and she says, I will disseminate this information and then I'll block you if you don't agree, right? She's got tenure at a university, which is no knock on her, but what does it say to all these other people who have PhDs, which she doesn't, who aren't even tenured professors, right? There's a track you have to go through and she's instantaneous. She got a Pulitzer Prize for writing what you know, amounts to uh, disinformation. So, but I still don't think she did it initially for money. I think Rogers, I mean, I'm sorry, Kendi's whole point was to make money. He doesn't believe what he's saying. Previously known as Rogers, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> the artist formerly known as Henry Rogers. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, you, you made mention of um, the literary quality of Ibram X. Kendi. And I think that was the one thing by which I was most struck after reading his work. I, I like to think that I have a pretty um, um, sophisticated grasp of, of literature and, and an appreciation of it. And I read his book and uh, this was after maybe a year of its having been published. And of course it was the talk of the town and uh, you know it was beginning to infiltrate the, the schools, public schools. Um, so I was expecting this marvelous, earth-shatteringly um, important work, well written, well considered, and well argued, and I found nothing of the sort. I was, <laughs> I was actually deeply disappointed, which is one reason why your book was was so refreshing. It's it's actually very well written, and not to make a direct comparison between you and uh, Doctor, the esteemed Doctor Kendi, um, but your book is very even-handed, I would say, um, very thorough and also beautifully written. Um, so just having read the two, I have to thank you um, for what was a refreshing um, come down from the from the Kendi disappointment. Right, that's funny. Well, I appreciate that. Well, so, you know, I'm a very plain speaking, but very logical person. So I don't think that, I'm not an academic anyway, but I still don't think, I, I don't knock it, but I don't think that you need to write, it's not like I'm writing a, 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 a an epic uh, story here, right? So you shouldn't necessarily use flowery words just to prove it. So a lot of times you read these books and it's like, I need people to know that I'm well read. So I'm going to stick these words in so I can make them go look them up, right? So that's not what I'm critiquing him on. I mean, some of it is, is bad like that. I'm not saying that it wasn't, you know, eloquent. He he made bad arguments and he did not back up his, the, the, the thought processes in the, the, the arguments are weak. And a little less in my most recent book, but if you go to We Want Equality, now you say even hand. I want to talk about that. So I make it a point to 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 you know what they say, try to steal man their argument at points. But I also when I make a point, I explain why clearly. I use examples, 
And I make it a point because I knew how people would take it. So like if you go to the last one, this one so, so somewhat, but the, definitely the last one. I think there are like 293 references in the back. I only use one conservative outlet. That's because there was a story I remembered and when I found it, nobody else reported. You go to the back of my book, either they're all academic texts, history books, or articles and news stories from MSNBC, Huffington Post, CNN. There's no Fox News. There's no, you know, uh, National Review because I knew you would, people would say, well, he's just, that's a right wing talking point. And he's just using the articles. No, here's an article from the Chicago Sun Times in 1989. Here's an article from the Washington Post in 2004 because I want to use their words and their explanations to make the point. I also don't like people taking out of context. You know, we live in a world where it's all clickbait headlines where no one reads the article. And you watch the news that that kind of leans what you believe and you hear only the parts you hear. So when I quote in the, in the current book, the 1619 Project or the BLM's demands, I put a chunk of their demands. So don't tell me I'm taking it out of context. So whereas what I think Kendi loses is that it's like, I just think if you want to get rid of racism, you need racism because all white people think this. Well, you never really want to say all. And you can't really back that up because it makes no sense. So of course there's no, here's my proof that all white people hate us because there is no proof. So you know, he leaves you unless you know he's never going to prove the thing he's saying because it's there's no way to prove it. And that's what I think the problem is. Yeah, and anytime you start uh, invoking those vast generalities of all this or all that, you're, you're going down a very precarious uh, path. And again, out of which I think nothing good can come. Uh, no, I, the the even-handedness that I applaud, about which you you spoke briefly, um, regarding both your your previous book and this most recent book, is exactly that. It's the fact that you take from all of these various organizations, be it BLM or the Movement for Black Lives or the 1619 Project, you take from them verbatim the words that they're using, and. Uh, with refreshing disinterest, again, even-handedness, you go through these arguments line by line and you dissect them very meticulously and you expose all <laughs> the many shortcomings. But you also acknowledge at points when there is a well-reasoned argument. You say, for instance, I, I don't have quotes in front of me right now, but you'll, you'll acknowledge, okay, BLM here is onto something. They're talking about um, black self-determination, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we can all get behind. We want self-determination for, for nations, for families, for individuals. Um, that's part of the classical liberal uh, ideal. Right. So you acknowledge that as an important um, fundamental feature of, of the individual who wants to prosper. But then you see where the path goes, that, that black... Um, uh, self-determination takes some interesting turns, and then you really take apart the arguments in that way. And I think for a reader, it's important to see that contrast, to see a, a, a mind like yours unafraid to tackle these ideas as they are coming to us. And like you said, a lot of times uh, they're, they're um, obscured or uh, embellished with this flowery academic rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. So. For all the polysyllabic um, heteronormativity uh, words that you that you come across, you can easily feel a bit intimidated as again, sort of a, a reader coming from the outside, not knowing exactly what that word means and thinking, okay, if that's the accusation because I don't quite understand it, it must apply. It must be well reasoned. Someone smarter than I must have come up with this term and and reasoned it out. But you're, again, it's, it's your fearlessness, I think, in writing this book that tackles a word like that and, and shows the, the vacuity of it, the emptiness of it, how it's really inapplicable um, to, to what the accusation is. So mm -hmm. speaking on that, I didn't really intend to go in this direction, but can you, um, can you comment on the, to use, to borrow a term from the left, the intersection? Uh, that has arisen between this um, black sort of collectivist movement, the BLM movement, and maybe the 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 gender movement, because I think that's something, at least at its origin, 
at BLM's origin, at the time of its origin, a lot of people overlooked. Stated explicitly on its website, I remember reading it in the summer of 2020 when uh, after perhaps George Floyd's death and it became more prominent, the movement did, um, reading about um, this strange entanglement of, of um, positions to forward the black community, but also to forward the the transgender community and perhaps the um, homosexual community. So can you speak a little bit to that? Right, well, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I, I said before, maybe 2018 or so, I started talking about this and I said that intersectionality, people were talking about that a lot then. It's really an interesting thing. It was being pushed by progressives. Conservatives were, you know, back on the heels freaking out about it. I said, no, you need to lean, in, lean into this because this is the best thing in your behalf. And, and, and people look at me confused. I said, no, you, you all constantly talk about the human condition and norms and what people do. Well, people are going to do what people do. So at some point, this intersectionality that they're trying to force is forced and it won't work. So what, what I was saying is that, that what they're trying to say, for those who don't know, is they're saying that a lot of different groups have different ways that they they deal with oppression or have problems or you know society is against them. So and some people may fit in more than one group. Like I might be a black female lesbian, right? So I'm all three. So where those intersect and where we have the same goals against the patriarchy, we should unite. Right. So I can see why somebody who politically is against that would push back against that. But the problem is we are all still in individuals and everybody's not all three, right? Most people are two or one or whatever. So even if they're active and they're fighting for their cause, it's going to come down where they have to choose in the fight between, you know, which one of these. So the resources are only going to go to one group. It's going to go to the gays or to the blacks. You know, so most black people are going to be like, look, nothing against them, but I want what's mine. Give me that that money. And they'll say, no, nobody's going to say, well, we got to make sure we give them a little bit, right? They'll be like, no. Let us get what we want. So you'll hear a lot in the black community about, I have nothing against uh, Hispanics, right? I have nothing against Muslims. They, they say that, but you know, the, the, the fight for civil rights in America was a black fight to begin with, and they're right. So when we shift affirmative action to include those groups, when we haven't even made ourselves whole yet, we have a fight problem with that. Well, so I just sit back and say, well, well what are you gonna do about that? How are you gonna get what you want? without stopping them from getting what they want. And immediately they say, okay, let's cut off all illegal immigration. I'm against DACA. You know, why is this thing becoming LGBT? And so now they start sounding kind of right-wing, even though they're still black first, because you can't do both, you can't, right? So the BLM thing was interesting because it was started by lesbians, so they were intersectional. So they were talking about black because they're seeing Trayvon Martin, but at the same time, we care about this other stuff. Nothing wrong with that. But they were selling it to the black community as this is a black movement. This is all about the way we're treated by police. But then you go and you look at the discourse and it's all, I mean, it wasn't one or two things. I want to let people know. It's nonstop. Like they had demands. When you talk about the movement for black lives, people should go check that out. It's like, we have demands. We want uh, to be treated fairly by police. And here are our list of demands. Allow people based on their gender identity to choose which prison they go to, right? ban detention centers at the border, right? So, and, and, and as you talk so eloquently, I appreciate that about how I'm even-handed and how I approach this. So my point in the book is never to say whether they're right or wrong about this. Think what you think. I'm explaining it to you, the reader. You, the reader. You, the Black person who's supporting BLM. So here's two. You, the Black person supporting BLM, his fist in the air, you're pro-Black first. And you, the middle-class white liberal who's wealthy, who's like, I hear Blacks got a raw deal. I just want to help them. Both of them have a good intentions. And then I lay out to them and say, well, do you know, Mr. White Man, that this group hates capitalism? If they had their way, you would be out of business. So when you support this organization, you are supporting your own demise. Go in the corner and think about that while I talk to my brother here. And then I say, hey, Black Man, you want to focus on what Blacks need, how affirmative action, civil rights that fall for our rights, and we we haven't been completed, completely made it where we need to be, and why you're still fighting for that. And the police treat us bad. So I like this BLM stuff. Well, do you do know when they say, you say you're against illegal immigration because it hurts poor Blacks, but BLM is not only supporting illegal immigration, they don't think you should be able to deport 
or to arrest them because they want to ban the detention centers. So therefore, everything you're against. You say the gay, you hate when LGBT community, you know, takes your your fight and, and as their own and say, we're just like the blacks. But that's what they're doing. It's all in the text of the BLM movement. So which one do you like? So which, which side can you pick? You got to pick a side because if you join them, you're fighting against all these other things you, you like. They have one thing that you like. They have 10 things you don't. So I would show that to people and they would read it and they would go, wow. Well, oh, I'm okay. I'm not down with that part. And I'm not down with that part. And I disagree with that. And I disagree with that. So what do you agree with? Well, I agree, agree with the part that we, they, we need to correct some things in policing. Well, they don't even say that anymore. Go to a website and show me what they said about policing. Nothing. It's gone. It's all, you know, we want equality for our immigrants and our migrants and this. And, and you know, we we owe other countries all this stuff. It's all the, the anti-American things. It's surprising to a lot of people who don't follow this stuff. Most people who are pro-Black are pro-America. So they're not anti-America. They want their equal white rights and equal opportunities, but they're not like trying to make themselves separate from. And that's a lot of this stuff is that global, progressive, one world order stuff. And then I go in for that. So when they see that, they're shocked by it. So I was trying to point that out to them. And I like to, so, so I don't know why that is. I would guess just because of the, the founder's belief system. But, and you know, my, this is the one thing that I, I do say that's just mostly opinion. I say, I think BLM started with their police focus. Yes, they were lesbian, but it was more subtle, but they were focused on policing. And some famous uh, or wealthy progressives came and said, we can help you broaden your reach. We'll give you a bunch of money. Yeah, we, we don't even want you to change what you believe. We just want to make some few tweaks, add a few things. Because if you think about it, I mentioned it before, but most people don't remember because this is way before the traditional family stuff. When they first started, about a year after that, they had BDS on the website. So whatever your views on BDS, I'd like to know what a black focus group in America focused on police and started by women in their 30s had to do with boycott, divest, and sanction Israel. You would think nothing. So the fact that, that they put that on their website should raise some red flags. But until George Floyd died, no one was looking at their website. That's the key. Yeah, and I don't, it's difficult to say this, but I don't entirely blame the founders of BLM um, for the way in which their movement has uh, has developed. Uh, they were, you were a closer scrutinizer of this organization from its, from its genesis. Um, of course, it came to my knowledge later, as it did to most people's. Right. But the, the, it, they can't be accused, at least when I encounter them, of of being um, well. They they can't be accused of being having been disingenuous because they stated that they were what practitioners of neo Marxism. Right. I remember that term specifically. Yeah. Uh, they called for the dissolution of the nuclear family. They had all these strange sexual um, um, man uh, calls for for. We're, we're women led. Do you remember that part? We said we are proud to be led by women. We are women. Women for we put women in the forefront and marginalized communities in the front in the forefront. Right, and they were emphatic about that, mm -hmm. and that's fine. Um, but now you you mentioned the idea of this global order and these. Um, these various and seemingly um, unaffiliated movements like the BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, um, mm -hmm. um, uh, the transgender movements and different things like that. Um, to me, it's it seems like the that Marxist bent um, is here at play. It's this idea that you need to have a totalizing collective movement that is <laughs> something akin to uh, uniting the workers of the world, as uh, Marx and Engels exhorted exhorted mm -hmm. us all to do. But in this case, it's it's the unification of the oppressed, of the downtrodden, uh, of those who feel themselves uh, maltreated by the white ruling class, however you might define that class. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what's happening with these um, seemingly unrelated um, group organizations, these entanglements with these different, um, with these different um, 
peoples across the world because again that strikes most people as as strange like you said mr white um and mr black are generally ignorant of that fact if they don't simply read your book or, or go onto the, one of these websites and and learn more about it right. um but still i wonder if mr white and mr black would shuffle away after you uh, inform them of all these facts and still <laughs> open up their venmo account or their paypal and donate to the blm um, organization i think in many instances they would because there's a certain social expectation or a pressure to do so or at least there was i think now it's that is diminished after we see uh, miss colors having uh, <laughs> absconded and <laughs> purchased herself i think four lovely homes and and they're nice homes they, they can't be that can't be disputed they are lovely homes um, mm -hmm. um, so i think for a for a long while that that even having learned the truth behind these organizations or at least this organization a lot of people as a sign of solidarity as a sign of virtue i don't know what it would be but they still would would donate to a cause that explicitly is against their um their morals and and their wishes and and um and um what they hold dear well I would say it'd be less likely for the black guy, Mr. Black, will be less likely to do it. But, but but part of it is because the things they have in common, the things they don't have in common, are probably they, there's a wider gap there than for the white guys. So they have the one, but there's a bunch of things they disagree with. The white guy would depend on how political he is, how liberal he is, or whatever the case may be, how strong that liberal guilt is, right? Because obviously, when it comes down to saving your family and saving yourself, you're going to save you. If they want your company to go under, you're not on their side, right? But if I can pat myself on the back and virtue signal, I'll give a couple bucks. But I don't know. But you, you, you're asking a different posing a different question. You say if they read the book and they knew, would they still do it? I'm hoping not, but I don't know. I think I give them enough evidence that it's telling you you should not. I convince them strongly that they shouldn't do it. Uh, but it also depends on that, like you talk about the global order thing, because, yeah, there's a lot of intersectional groups that people latch on just because I don't like what some of the things they say, but I like this. And one of the weird ones is the border thing. Right. So if you're part of the true, the people, because there are people, even neoconservative people and, you know, the, the very wealthy people who are conservative on certain fronts. Right. And then, you know, the, obviously the left who just don't think you should have borders. They're like, fine. I mean, I'll be fine either way, right? The more cheap labor that comes in is good for me. So those people probably wouldn't care, right? They, they probably would continue to do so. But for that guy who has a mid-sized company, he's doing pretty well and they want, because let's be real. We talk about it having a Marxist, you know, kind of tense and it does. And they openly say that. But do they really do they really believe this? Right. Because can you really unless you're assuming that I want Marxism, but I want to be the people at the top. Right. You can't say that I don't agree. I don't believe I morally is horrible that people can have capitalism and make money while you're taking 10 million dollars and while you're buying. six. Yeah, I, I can assure you that no uh, avowed Marxist ever imagines himself in the proletariat. That's right. <laughs> that's the. The unspoken truth of Marxism. Everyone, uh, every person by whom that ideal that ideology is advocated, never imagines that they'll be, um, you know, uh, working on the railroads or, or digging the ditches. Uh, but I watch people defend them. I know when when the, when the colors thing first came out, um, not when they, you know, absconding the money, just buying a house. You know, there were progressive um, pundits saying. You know, well, I don't really see what the big deal is. And so she bought a couple of houses. So what? I mean, for the work that they do. So she had a little, they were kind of like dismissing it or whatever. But it's like, but how can you do it? You say you want to distribute funds to everybody. You want things to be all equal. You don't want people to own all this property. You don't uh, believe in property owners so much that you bought multiple properties and people just shrugged it off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually would be less... Uh, less offended by, less opposed to a, a real Marxist if he or she would to live out her uh, Marxism. Uh, I, and of course, it's not an ideology with which I agree. Uh, I think it's quite destructive. Although in Marx, if you read him, and, and some of his work is difficult, but if you do read uh, some of it, there is a, there is some, and this is a 
maybe a conversation for a different time, but there, there is sort of a humanitarian bent in him. And, and if you read him sympathetically, you, you can see that. But, but really, I want a, 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 a true avowed uh, Marxist who is, who is uh, sort of trying to promulgate this idea to the rest of us to live out that Marxism. I think that's only right. Right, right. So we'll see what happens. To be continued, I guess, on that. Yeah, certainly. So maybe uh, can you comment very briefly on the movement for Black Lives? Uh, you refer to that as uh, the ventriloquist dummy um, relationship. Uh, arrangement, relationship, uh, which has, if I'm not mistaken, BLM as sort of the puppet, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And the uh, movement for Black Lives, uh, with its, I suppose, hand up the puppet's derriere, operating things from behind the scenes. So for those of us who are unaware of this part of the, of the relationship, can you explain that just briefly? Well, this is the most um, like remarkable part. The book's been out a year, and I'm just one guy, right? But you think some people, people have read it. It's, it's sold a couple copies, right? People know about it. People have done a lot of shows. You think somebody with a bigger platform would have heard just like, let me see what this, go look this up. Because what's most fascinating to me, and, and, and right, you got people political, people culturally who are railing against, you know, BLM and all these groups and railing against progressive, and no one's noticed this. But there is, so everybody knows BLM, the movement for Black Lives, the fact that you've never heard of them and they wield so much power is the problem. So I found them by mistake. And if you pick up the book, you'll find out how I found them. I was researching BLM and this name came up and I'm a technical literal guy. And I'm like, if it was BLM, it would say BLM, but it doesn't say BLM. It says, it doesn't say Black Lives Matter, it says Movement for Black Lives. What is this? And I go in and then it's like that, the, the, the modern day dystopian film, you know, because now they're all technical films. You know, you, you click it on something, you click the wrong thing and all these files start to open. And so what I found was that's this organization. You don't see a board. You don't see names. Uh, they don't do interviews, but they have a list of demands. They have a list and, and they talk in the same language that BLM does. They have a list of, I don't know, I think last time I looked, it was over 100 organizations that they fund. And they have a list of, it looks like a, a constant, like a preamble to a constitution. It's written, well written. It's got demands and it's got uh, legal acts ready, packaged and ready to go when they win the house, right? And it's all this stuff, right? So they say, we are abolitionists. We are anti-capitalists, right? We don't just want to defund the police. We want no police. And they have all these demands and they say, why? We need to do this for, for, for trans rights, for black rights, for migrant rights, for uh, criminality, no, no uh, police in schools, all this kind of stuff, right? So a lot of the stuff you hear from, you know, the far left wing of the Democrat Party or just these progressive activists. And so what I believe and what I found is that a lot of the talking points come from there that you hear BLM talk about. So if you ever see somebody on TV, it's somebody from BLM. You never see anybody from the move for Black Lives. But when I first started talking about it, I talk about, I want to say $100 million they got. So they got $100 million. And so you, and I put a chart in the book of all this money that goes away. So they take this money and they're giving money to the, 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 the official global Black Lives Matter chapter. They're giving it to the to this other group. They're giving it to the group in Minneapolis that were uh, bailing people out of jail. That money came from them. Uh, they're giving money to uh, Ashada Sisters in Chicago. They're giving money to these organizations over here, but they're silent. You don't know who they are. You don't know anything about them. And so that's what I talk about. So I list their demands. I put the link up. The uh, is what is it? M4BL.org. Uh, go check that out. Yeah, and it's I'll, just a dark I'll, sinister I'll, group. And I'll provide a link to that in the show notes below. Uh, so mm -hmm. if, if anyone's interested in uh, doing his or her own research into this organization, I urge you to do so. And yeah, that was one of the, the striking um, revelations that I found in your book is this, uh, this shadow organization, essentially, that is instituting all of the ideas that BLM then, you know, the face of the black movement is then, mm -hmm. is then taking. It's almost, and it's not quite even sanitizing these ideas or laundering them. They're, they're quite, it's a quite um, uninterrupted thorough way from <laughs> the movement for Black Lives directly into the Black Lives Matter organization. And again, because of the similarity in the names of these organizations, it can become a little bit confusing for those who are not like really attentive to the to the small differentiation between the two. And it's brilliant because it's not illegal. Oh, it's totally right? brilliant. 
And you're not going to know. I mean, you know, if you go after BLM, look at all the people talking hands. BLM is terrible. Nobody's talking about them. They just go, okay, we just keep operating. So if you donate money, if they wanted to track where you gave money, so you gave money to BLM, that's bad. You gave money for movement for Black Lives, people just throw because they don't know what it is. And, you know, they, they're able to, you know, operate in shadows, which is part of the problem. And I don't know why anyone else, I talk about in the book a funny story of how close it happened. I was watching TV and it was almost there and then they didn't miss it. They put the sign on the screen behind them and it and it talked about this one of the groups they fund, but at the bottom it had their logo that said, Black Lives, and never mentioned it. I was like, oh, you were so close. And it was somebody, I won't give away the name, but it was somebody who would have gotten a couple million eyes on it if they looked at it but mm -hmm. you know, i'm mm -hmm. hoping i can get him to to mention it you know he's been on my podcast before so i i forgot to mention it to him we got busy but i should talk about that but yeah you yeah, you about yeah you absolutely should and i mean they've they've managed successfully and this is extraordinary to me successfully to remain behind this this airtight veil of ignorance right so mm -hmm. this is something through which no one else can peer and it's been extraordinarily lucrative for, for everyone involved. So it's really And I'm the only one I can say I've read Mary Graybar's book on debunking the 1619, you know, Gonzalez's book on BLM. I am the only one to write about the movement for black lives. Right, right. So it's like this little jewel that is nestled in your work. And of course, the work in its totality is excellent. But um, again, this was the part uh, on which I sort of fixated in my mouth, uh, my jaw fell to the floor when I read this part because yeah, this no, this is something of which no one has made mention. And many people from Tucker Carlson to Candace Owens to, you know, a lot of- uh, Right, she's had a documentary about him and doesn't right, mention Right, right, uh, which I have not yet watched, I plan to in the future. But somebody sent me a message and said that she didn't mention it, so it's not in the documentary. Right, and uh, to I me, it's, it's astonishing how this crucial feature has gone completely unmentioned by those who have teams, right? Production teams looking into uh, every nick, every um, uh, you know, every nick and cranny of these organizations. But yeah, you don't have to dig through anything. All I did was Google it. Yeah, I read one article that mentioned somebody got money, and I clicked the link, and I just got all this information. Yeah, and and we're all enriched for for that reason. So again, another reason why everyone should go out and <laughs> purchase this book, um, Race Crazy. Um, from which you'll 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 learn these important facts. All right, so that's uh, a, a great differentiation, I think, and a very important one between uh, Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives. Um, we know, of course, uh, at this point, the faces of Black Lives Matter, um, but we perhaps never will know uh, those of uh, the movement for Black Lives. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the special animosity uh, that the left has for black conservatives. Now, I'm not saying that you're a conservative, um, you haven't self-identified in any in any way, um, but this is a trend that we've seen uh, more pronounced as of late. It's I think it's it has quite a history behind it, but um, it seems as though there's a peculiar animosity, um, a different type of venomous dislike for black conservatives and intellectuals um, that are in the public eye, people like Justice Clarence Thomas, um, Senator Tim Scott, um, Thomas Sowell, Larry Elder, um, the late Herman Cain. To what do you um, attribute this special form of dislike for black conservatives? You know, it's really weird. Um... We hear it so often, so people don't think about how weird it is. But it's weird because we also, so at the time we hear, black conservatives get it so hard, they get attacked. At the same time, those same, most of those same people say the black community is really quite traditional. They're quite conservative. They don't vote for Republicans, but they are conservative. So if the black community is conservative, why is it odd that some guy is conservative? You know, for, on, on, on one, from one respect, that's odd. But then they also attack people who are in theory, maybe they don't like the delivery, and they don't all have the same delivery, but in theory are saying that Blacks have the same capabilities as others. You know, they they care about their families like anyone else. They don't want crime in their community just like anyone else. Stop saying they're different, you know, than other people. 
And for that, they're being attacked. So even the, the things that they're saying, what are they saying is so, now they project things to them and say, well, you don't care about the community because you want to talk about black on black crime, but that's not all of them. They'll say that, well, you are an apologist for whites, but how is saying that, just give me an equal opportunity. You know, think about the 60s, the sandwich board, I am a man. They weren't saying, I am a man, I'm a man and I'm black, so treat me in a special way because I'm black. They're like, stop treating me less than, but they're not saying treating me better than. So I don't understand how someone who's just saying, well, I think the opportunities are there, you know, we need to we take a look sometimes inward uh, and that's blaming people. That's not blaming anybody. You do it in your own. And the problem is the loudest voices tend to be blacks who are successful attacking them, right? So they can say whatever they want about black conservatives, about black people and about opportunities and systemic racism. But Mark Lamont Hill and Nicole Hannah Jones and Michael Eric Dyson and Charles Blow can't say they don't get up every morning and work hard. They can't say that they don't try and, and, and that, that, that their work ethic is not part of the reason that they're successful. They can't say they're not successful. So in a country, that they are trying to say is teeming with anti-black racism, they have found a way, and not independently to be successful. Now, if they found a way independently, that's one thing, but they found a way as that, what did Obama famously say? You didn't build that. So Nicola Jones did not win a Pulitzer Prize for writing something, even if it's well-written by herself, right? The New York Times Magazine had to publish it. I don't think those people were black. So she can't say she did it by herself, right? So if the country is so anti-black, one, those racist whites would not have allowed you to do it. And then nobody would have read it. And then no one would have agreed to give you the Pulitzer Prize. And then, and then, and then. So they seem to be the ones arguing against what they're, what they're living, right? And all the conservatives are doing is saying, we have the opportunity, let's focus on what we can control. And they don't seem to want to do that. So it, it's kind of perplexing. Uh, you shouldn't be surprised by it now because it happens so often, but it just doesn't make sense to me. And it doesn't, to be honest, it doesn't, it rings kind of hollow. I don't think they actually mean it. They are either in that group we talked about earlier that are making money and they think that if people listen to that, they take away from the money. Some of them are politically aligned and agreeing with them with her. I, I forgot who it was. Some prominent Democrat Republican was caught on tape 10, 15 years ago saying that they agree with them, but we can't say that because it's not a political win. It hurts us politically. So it's just political action and, and money. I don't think they actually believe, they can't believe that blacks can't achieve because they're always talking from a pro-black standpoint. So I don't understand it. Yeah, no, and I share in that that inability to understand. Um, can you can you speak to that, uh, that, um, that in that internal tension between in the in the black community between the propensity to be a little bit more traditional and yet not to support the political party that perhaps best forwards that um that way of living that way of thinking i'm sure this is a question posed to you often and i do think that at this point if you look at the the statistics and um, the the results of of recent elections that that gap is shrinking, um, but maybe you can speak to that. It's sad, but it's pretty simple. The Democrats have successfully painted a narrative that Republicans are racist, you know, just genetically, automatically. For the Republicans' part, they were incompetent enough, and uh, I could use other words bad enough to not go state their claim and argue against it and prove it's not there. So if they don't come to the community except for an election year to ask for a vote. And every day the Democrats are telling them this and you believe it, they have no reason to not believe it. So it's not that they're not traditional. It's not like it's some you know contrast and it doesn't make sense. It makes sense because they're traditional, but they believe Republicans are racist. Republicans have never done anything to make them think otherwise. The Democrats are telling them that you're right, that they're racist. So why would I go vote for a racist? And then you can say, well, if they're not racist, how do I know? Right? So that's what I believe. And no one has been able to convince them otherwise. So they aren't voting against their best interests or their traditional values. They're voting against the racist, right? So, and, and in many large cities, the Republicans also do another bad thing in that they don't even try and I moved to New York from Chicago. And when I was in Chicago, many politicians in Chicago ran out of polls. There were no Republicans on the ballot. So who would I want to vote? Who was I going to vote for even if I wanted to vote against the Democrats? There's no one running. So 
part of it from, is you went, you went from the frying pan into the fire. <laughs> yes, indeed. I know. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting to watch though. And, and from that respect, that's what happens. Right. So they either have no alternative because no one runs or they just believe this narrative and no one has yet found an effective way to convince them otherwise. It is remarkable when one considers the history of the Democrat Party. Uh, I just recently I finished reading the the collected works of Abraham Lincoln, and it's a it's a fabulous way to spend a, a weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, he is the image of the Republican Party at its origin. And you can read his debates with Stephen Douglas, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm the Democrat senator, uh, the incumbent senator at that time in Illinois. And the Democrat platform is very clearly stated by Mr. Douglas and repeatedly over the course of seven debates. It was um, advocating the expansion of slavery into the territories. It was advocating the continuation of the fugitive slave laws. It was a general warmth toward slavery as an institution. Um, and a very strong and vehement resistance to any power uh, from the federal government that might wish to uh, end that. Now, uh, that's the same Democrat Party that existed um, years prior. It's the same Democrat Party um, as an institution that exists today. It's the longest, probably one of the longest running, uh, longest enduring political parties in all the world. Um, so I think if, and of course the Republican Party was created in opposition to that, to many of those ideas. Um, mm -hmm. So to me, it's particularly distressing and saddening when I when I think about the history of these two parties and how we've arrived at this point today where um, someone in the inner city, uh, a black man in the inner city might just hear the word Republican and uh, reflexively associate that term with racism. I, I think a little bit of knowledge, and I'm, and I'm not accusing that our example of a man of being ignorant, but I think a little knowledge of that, even that period of time, just reading those debates would really um, uh, enlighten him. It would really elucidate the fact that these parties are very different and the current manifestation of the Republican Party, though different from its uh, original origin under under Lincoln and his successors, um, isn't isn't vastly different. Isn't vastly different. So, do you think it's perhaps a, a lack of education that leads to this to this misguided view? Unfortunately, it's a simple answer to it's to say if you're not there to spend to tell the truth, people can spin the narrative. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's this constant refrain of the parties have changed, right? Nice. That's simple. You say that phrase and that's it. Yeah, that's all true. But then in 1960, it all changed and, you know, it's different. Although that's not true. And it's really hard to convince people they're not true. I've seen many people do different, you know, documents. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza, uh, Prayer You did a video. I think they're focusing on the wrong thing. You got to keep it simple if you're doing it for regular people. So simplify it. How, so when, how I, when people ask me about did the parties change, I say, let's be real simple. Where people shifted, it was mostly economic, not on race. But even if you want to say the party shifted, the claim is that Nixon went down, started his Southern strategy, and then he got all the whites in the South to shift. Okay. If that is true, I just say two simple things. One, who won the presidency in 76 and almost won in 80? It was the peanut farmer from Georgia. He won the South. Even when he lost to Reagan, he won the South, right? right. So Reagan and the, was the and the Democrat, I should, I'll just interrupt. The Democrat Party had a very clever and intentional uh, move to only <laughs> promote to national prominence these sort of um, unintimidating Southern whites. You look at Carter, you look at Clinton, right? You look at Al Gore. So this was a, a deliberate idea that was instilled by the party and continued on for quite a few election cycles. Right. But they look at the, the national. So they look at the president. They forget that the state houses took much longer to shift. They were all still Democrat. In fact, my, my esteemed colleague and my favorite person, because, you know, in the book I di dissect, right? 
she claims I never read her uh, her project, which is funny to me. She told me that. But Nicole Hannah-Jones, in their uh, essay that I didn't read called Un uh, Undemocratic Democracy, they're basically talking about slavery and democracy and how the country's not uh, wants to suppress votes of certain people and beat up on the Republicans. And they made a mistake by telling the truth. At one point in there, they say, and then, because, you know, I think logically, and then when in North Carolina, part of the Confederacy, when in, I forgot the year exactly, I don't know, 96, 2000, when the Republicans, no, it had to be the 2000, 2000, 2004, when the Republicans gained the control of the of the state house for the first time in a hundred years, they try to start gerrymandering, doing all this. So ignore all the part about what they did, whether they did it or not, that's a separate argument. If the key part was when they admitted that the Republicans gained control of the house for the first time in a hundred years, but I thought there was a Southern strategy and the, the Republicans controlled the South, but the Democrats controlled the Republic, the, the North Carolina up until the 2000s. There are plenty of places like this, right? So to say that the South just turned into this, you know, all Republican areas because of racism, because the Republicans went down there and pushed race, it's just totally untrue. You can go back to, um uh uh harding in in the 20s he, he yeah he had his scandal he had his issues but he also was pushing the first anti-lynching bill he was a republican it's not like it ended in 1860 it's crazy coolidge you know writing about you know he got someone wrote him a letter about you know i like you but i don't know why you uh want blacks to have the same freedom he's like what do you mean why I don't you know so he wrote this long letter why why blacks should be welcome in the white house so republican so to say that slavery ended and in all of this it's madness right but and maybe you can remind us of the one president uh, who attempted to um segregate the white house uh, oh uh, uh you're talking about um when 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 uh, roosevelt invited um Booker T to the White House? Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm referencing specifically Woodrow Wilson. Uh, or, uh, oh, to, oh, you said to segregate, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah, the civil service. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Former yeah, governor yeah, of yeah. my he home was, state he, of New Jersey. But again, oh, yeah, he's easily the most racist president of all time. Yeah, easily. yeah. A Virginian, a Virginian, a, a well educated Virginian, right? Who was yeah. governor of New Jersey. He wouldn't Jersey. let blacks into uh, Princeton when he was the president of Princeton. Oh yeah, he was he was what is it the birth uh, birth of a nation movie in the White House? Oh yeah, he's easily the most racist. Uh, but but they'll say yeah, but it changed. No, no, and where people shifted, they shifted from an economic standpoint, right? When when one party started to be the party of elites and one party started to be the party, same today. Which party is the party of elites? Which party is the party of the of the working class and middle class? Whether they adhere to it or not, which one speaks to them? That's who people vote for, and that's what happens. And so, you know, one quick thing I want to say before we get out of here, earlier to reference back to being even kill, you talk about that. I, I was fortunate enough to do uh, a talk on my book on book TV. And I saw a comment and I laughed because I love reading comments. People are funny. And they beat me up. I'm so even killed and, so, uh, and, and fair that people beat me up because I guess I don't think I said 90. I think I said 70. But they said, look at this fool. He said that the 1619 project is 90 percent true. So if it's 90 percent true, then what is his argument against it? But that proves that one, that I'm being fair because I'm saying most of what it says is true. But if you lie of omission and if you, you state a fact, but your conclusion is false, that's how it can be untrue. And and, the and I wish I could speak to that person, but one of the uh, examples I give to people, if I say I'm going to write, I write a book, and I say, this is the definitive book on the history of America. It's 700 pages. And I said, definitive book, it explains everything, and I'm gonna tell you how terrible the country is. And then in the book, I talk about how I'm originally from, let's do one of the later states. I'm from Alaska. And the whole book is about facts from, from Alaska. And then I extrapolate all this stuff about the racist, racism of America. But how can it be a definitive? Everything I write is factual about Alaska. But Alaska's only been in the union for what, 70 years or so. So how can I have a definitive book on America writing about a state that started in the 1950s, 1949 or whatever it was. So that's how. So that's how what they said could be true, but it's still not you know, covering the breadth of America, right? So they talk about 1619 and they ignore the slaves in, in Florida in the 1500s. Florida's America and those slaves were African slaves who were brought by Europeans, right? Just not Britons, right? Because you wanted to spin your narrative on the UK and you couldn't count Spain, so you threw that out. 
So you're excluding stuff. So those are the type of things you'll find out and you'll learn in the book. And I wanted to point that out. Yeah, and thank you for doing so. And and you do that time and again. To to your point about the the 90% that is truthful and, and worthwhile and the 10% that is not, I mean, just imagine you bake yourself a cake. 90% is delicious and, and covered in dress, you know, in, in proper um, icing and, and sprinkles. But 10% is ground up crickets, right? Or, or some other noxious. Alive, and it's eating the, the, the cake. That's better. Or, or alive, yes, and consuming the cake. Well, then I would think at that point, that 10% is perhaps worth looking into and, and worth commenting on and perhaps discarding. <laughs> um, and it certainly soils and sullies the rest of the cake. Um, so no, but again, that it speaks to your your ability to be disinterested, very logical, and dispassionate in your analysis um, of these works. And again, you're not you, you don't come off as partisan in the work. You don't you're not preaching. You're simply um, scrutinizing very closely and very um, very effectively these arguments that are made and where they falter uh, and and perhaps where they succeed. So with that, you've, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I've loved every minute of this. I, I still have so many questions that I would want to pose to you because you are just so rife with information and knowledge. And I just hope that, you're, I mean, your voice is already out there, but I hope that it's elevated even more. And whatever my humble little platform can do to contribute to that rise, uh, I will. Um, so. Again, I'll provide links to all of your works in the show notes below. I purchased my copy of Race Crazy at uh, Barnes & Noble. I'm sure they're available on Amazon everywhere. Um, you know, good, good, wholesome books are, are sold. Um, so uh, with that, do you have any social media platforms or websites that people can visit in order to keep track of you and to, and to visit you? Yeah, they can uh, find me on Twitter at CDouglasLove3. Uh, the, the podcast is Cut the Bull Podcast. Check that out. Um, we have some interesting guests. And the website is thecharleslove.com. Yeah, simple enough. So again, I'll include links to all of those uh, in the show notes below. And with that, I thank you once again, uh, Mr. Love, for your time and your knowledge and your fearlessness um, in facing what can be a daunting uh, onslaught from <laughs> uh, contrary forces. Um, so with that, I thank you all for watching. Um, and farewell from Finneran's Wake. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. 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 Shout, leave a shout, Daniel.